Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 402. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Florist Review Magazine. I'm delighted to serve as contributing editor for Slow Flowers Journal, found in the pages of Florist Review. It's the leading trade magazine in the floral industry and the only independent periodical for the retail, wholesale, and supplier market. Take advantage of the special subscription offer for members of the Slow Flowers community at deborahprinzing.com, where you can also find the show notes for today's episode 402. Our first sponsor spotlight thanks goes to Syndicate Sales, an American manufacturer of vases and accessories for the professional florist. Look for the American flag icon to find Syndicate's USA-made products and join the Syndicate Stars loyalty program at syndicatesales.com. We're so excited that Syndicate has joined the Slow Flower Summit as a sponsor. And if you attend, you'll be heading home with some fun Syndicate USA-made swag. Our theme for 2019, 50 States of Slow Flowers, continues today with floral designer Rain Grace Hoke of Flora's Muse, based in Biddeford, Maine. Listen for my conversation with Rain in the second portion of this episode. If you're listening on this episode's release day, May 22nd, I'm coming to you from London, where I have traveled to attend the RHS Chelsea Flower Show and report for Florist Review and its sister publications. This incredible trip would never have happened without a surprise birthday gift from my husband, Bruce Brooks, who completely floored me with a dream experience. So, of course, I wanted to season today's episode with all things British. Our guest is my dear friend, Marty Wingen, and I'm so excited to introduce you to her as she shares her journey from a successful garden writer to an even more successful mystery writer. All of Marty's titles are traditional mysteries that take place against her favorite British gardens, landscapes, estates, and historic manor houses as backdrops. Her mystery-solving female protagonists are curious, clever, and courageous, even when they get themselves into tricky situations that require their amateur sleuthing skills. Here's more about Marty, excerpted from a 2017 profile I wrote about her for the Garden Writers Association membership publication. Armed with a master's in urban horticulture from the University of Washington, not to mention being a bona fide King County master gardener, a Seattle gardening personality who for years wrote a weekly newspaper column and appeared on the local NPR radio station, Marty Wingett knows how to diagnose dead plants. And now, after pinning more than 10 murder mysteries and being named a USA Today bestselling author, you could say Marty also solves mysteries about 
dead characters. The threads connecting these different chapters of her life tie together in Marty's skill for storytelling, her Anglophile tendencies, and a love for all things botanical. She leads garden tours to England, Scotland, and Ireland, and she is a member of the UK-based Royal Horticultural Society. In addition to being a longtime member of Garden Writers, now called Garden Com, she is a member of the Mystery Writers of America, Sisters in Crime, and the Crime Writers Association, as well as the Royal Society for the Protection of birds. In 2014, Alibi, a random house imprint, published The Garden Plot, Marty's first book in the Potting Shed series. The books feature Prue Park, a middle-aged American gardener transplanted from Texas to England. Murder has a way of finding Prue wherever she gardens. The seventh title in this series, Midsummer Mayhem, was just released November of 2018. After her stories about Prue were well underway, Marty's editor suggested she dream up a new protagonist to engage the burning crowd. Julia Lanchester, a bird lover who runs a tourist office in a Suffolk village, was born, part of the Birds of a Feather series, with the fourth in the series, Farewell, My Cuckoo, also published in 2018. Marty's books are available on tablets and smart readers, with fans having downloaded more than 120,000 books in just four years. Marty's newest series, the first edition library published by Berkeley, presents Haley Burke, the curator of a collection of books from the golden age of mystery. The Bodies in the Library, book one, will be released October 1st, 2019. How did this popular garden writer who has authored five garden titles and whose byline continues to appear in Country Gardens, American Gardener, and other publications become a successful mystery writer? So many self-employed garden communicators are interested in diversifying their careers into crossover platforms such as culinary travel, health and wellness, or floral, well, that would be me, and yet why not fiction? Marty lives with her husband and two cats near Seattle, her local library standing in for a more colorful writing venue, say Vita Sackville West's Tower at Sissinghurst. In her bio, we learned that Marty takes research seriously. She is a former how-to garden writer of numerous books and a countless number, at least she stopped counting ages ago, of magazine and newspaper articles on everything from apple maggot to the prettiest daffodils and the best-smelling roses. Research took on an entirely new light when she began writing mysteries, and now she and her husband travel regularly to England and Scotland, where Marty plunges deeply into study concerning the next adventure for her protagonists, Haley, Julia, and Prue, sparing not a few minutes a day to head to the pub. You can find more about Marty and her books, as well as her other projects, including her upcoming garden tour to the Cotswolds in 2020, in today's show notes for episode 402 at deborahprinzing.com. I'll also share links to her social places, so let's get started. to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, and I'm so excited today to have my wonderful friend Marty Wingett as my guest. Hi, Marty. Hi, Deborah. Marty is an unusual guest for us because uh, she has um, a pen in hand at all times. She is a mystery writer, and Marty writes mysteries that tend to be based in, um, in horticulture or nature, and now her third book she'll tell us about, which is something a little different. Marty is the USA Today 
best-selling author of uh, three murder mystery series. So hi, Marty. Hi, Deborah. Thanks very much for saying such nice things about me. Oh, I can say more. Um, uh, let me do that. <laughs> um, we, the reason I ask you on is because um, our listeners will be hearing this episode uh, in, the, in the third week of May when I am at the Chelsea Flower Show in England. You are a major influence on my life in all things Anglophile, and you have a murder mystery that takes place at the Chelsea Flower Show. So um, I think we should start with that and tell me, it's called Blue Bonnet Betrayal. The Blue Bonnet Betrayal, that's right. Okay, so tell us, <laughs> just give us a snapshot of that book. Well, The Blue Bonnet Betrayal is number five in the Potting Shed series. And the series is about an American gardener who moves from Dallas, Texas to England. So in book five, Prue Park, Prue, I love that yes, name. Prue, that's yes. a little British, isn't Middle it? Middle-aged American gardener uh, <laughs> has been coerced into helping the Austin Rock Garden Society uh, build their garden at the Chelsea Flower Show. And it's very exciting for her. Uh, there's one woman she vaguely remembers from working at the Dallas Arboretum. And it is very obviously floral-oriented. There's supposed to be a whole field of blue bonnets uh, in the garden show, uh, in their, their display, uh, which, of course, you know, as you can imagine in a murder mystery, things go terribly wrong. <laughs> it is one of my favorites, but they're all my favorites. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so you'll have to get the book, The Blue Bonnet Betrayal, to hear what happens, um, and, or to read what happens. I guess you can hear it, too, because it's an audio book. It is an audio book, too, yeah, or an e-book. And um, it, I, I tried to infuse everything I knew about Chelsea, the Chelsea Flower Show, into that book. So um, I hope that they'll talk about the big marquee, where all the floral displays are, uh, Deborah, that you, you have seen before, mm -hmm. and you and will see again. The big white tent, right? Yes, So, yes. Th But the, 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 the gardener's from the, I should say, faux rock garden society, because this is not a real society, right? I made sure that there was not a chapter of the North American Rock Garden Society anywhere in the state of Texas. <laughs> so I felt free to use the Austin Rock Garden Society in any way I chose. Mm, oh, this is like literary uh, license. Yes, okay. exactly. Uh, so that was, is that garden in one of the big displays outdoors? It's, it's not in the tent. It's not in the okay. tent. It's at the very bottom of uh, the main street where uh, the, the display gardens kind yes. of go along. The, yeah, it's great. Yes. Yeah. Great. I'm so excited about that. But what I also want to know from you, Marty, and this, this kind of ties into the Blue Bonnet Betrayal, your, I am fascinated with your process of research. So um, big secret here, mm. you have to go to England to research these books, I right? I know. It's very sad, isn't it? <laughs> Someone's got to do it. <laughs> On the ground research. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you research Chelsea. I mean, obviously, you've gone many, many years yes. in a row, right? Yeah. I was fortunate in that uh, one of the top designers in England, Andrew Wilson, was in Seattle for the Northwest Flower and Garden Show one year. And I asked Andrew, because he and his business partner were building another garden at Chelsea, if it was possible for me to come in during build-up. And um, so he got me a pass, and I had to wear the steel-toed boots and tromp along. And um, I had a great day looking at this is an 11 acre field that gets turned into a city of plants right and then all gets put away again and and so I I knew I was on the right track when at the the build-up day when I was there and it was just mostly dirt everywhere um I was talking to Andrew and his business partner about um their garden and how they build 
And um, Gavin stepped away because he had a phone call. And when he finished his phone call, he came back and said, you want to see a murder? Stick around. Our sponsor's coming for a meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Gave you a good idea, Oh, my gosh, yes. (laughs) So uh, I, we kind of jumped in the middle because we, we were talking about book five. Mm-hmm. But this series uh, that you started called The Potting Shed Mysteries. Yes. Uh, when did that start and what was the first title? And tell us more about Prue Park, your, who I like to think is sort of your alter ego. Oh, I, I suppose she did start out as my... I think all characters... Uh, I'm sure that most fiction writers would say that there's a little bit of him or her in every mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. But certainly Prue. Um, who turned uh, 50 and decided because her mother was English and her father had died long ago that she would move to England because she remembered her mother's stories. And she had a little like per- breakup or some sadness yes, and yes. romance, right? Yes, we, we, we come across that in book three in Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Oh, okay. We hear the story of, of um, Marcus. Yes. Oh, but that's sort of what made her feel that like is, free to move, right? That is. one of the okay. things that prompted this move. And um, so I have continued to have the, the most fun figuring out what garden-related thing that is also quite English mm-hmm. Prue might get into. Mm-hmm. So in the first book, The Garden Plot, Prue is at the end of her year. She gave herself a year to find a, a job, a full-time job as a head gardener of a historic garden in England. Oh, yeah, those are easy to find. Plus, um, wait, first of all, very few Americans get those jobs, right? right? And right. probably very few women get those jobs. Uh, well, exactly. Not too many. Oh, there are more and more now. But um, she, so what she's been doing is living in London in a sub-sublet. So she got a house for a song because it, the owners were away. And, do, and being a, what they call a jobbing gardener, cutting the grass, pruning the hedge here, and, and planting a pot there, going all over London doing this. She's at the end of the year, she's going to have to move back. And she gets a commission for a back garden uh, in Chelsea. And um, the gardens in London, if anyone's visited, and I know you know this, they're, they're very narrow and deep. Right. So at the, the deepest part of the garden, uh, they call the bottom of the garden. In England, so at the bottom of the garden, there's a shed, and she's digging in the shed one day and uncovers uh, a Roman um, floor, a mosaic floor of Roman design. Well, as her friend Joe says, Roman ruins are as common as dirt in London. <laughs> but she's very excited. But that precipitates a murder, which precipitates her trying to figure out who did it, so that with the glimmer of hope that she might be able to stay in England. Okay, and that's that's going to keep us hanging on for book two through yes. seven yes. in that series. Yeah. And then somewhere along the line, you uh, started a second series, which is kind of, a, it's nature-related, I guess you would say, right? It is, Birds of a Feather. That series is because my um, editor happened to say, after three Potting Shed books, uh, to my agent... Because, you know, you're outside, there are birds outside. So I had a bird here and there, and they're English birds, mind you. And so he said to my agent, would Marty be interested in writing a series about birds? And I said, well, of course, because you never say no, do you? Not to no. an opportunity like that. <laughs> so I started the Birds of a Feather series, which takes place in Suffolk, although Prue hops around a fair bit around um, 
uh, England and Scotland. She's in London and then Sussex and then Edinburgh and then Hampshire. So oh, wait, let's put a pin in this. Let's talk about the birds in a minute. But yeah. Prue does get around. She does. Because remember when we were in Italy together, yes. we were fantasizing that Prue was going to go to Italy and that's yes. how you're going to write off that trip. Right? I was. I thought it would be a great idea. It would be instead of the potting shed uh, mystery, it would be La Limonella. Ooh, because remember, that's right. where they put the limit, the potted, big potted lemon trees in the winter Which to protect. Is kind them. of a shed. Yeah, kind of. Um, but that may still happen. It may. Okay, so we're going. I, I just had to, I know, that's you know, right. drop Montisi and our wonderful time at Villa Madalena, which yeah. was what 2013. I think it was. All right, so Marty and I go way back, and we'll talk about that. Um, but the uh, the character, your protagonist in Birds of the Feather, sh- is she moving around as much, or she is not? Okay, uh, it, this the Birds of a Feather series is in Suffolk, um, so it's northeast of England, uh, London, a okay. little bit, and um, she lives in a village called Smeaton under Lyme. But it's a thinly disguised village. I kind of mushed together too. Long Melford, it's very much Long Melford, which is a fabulous um, village. And and a little bit of uh, 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 another village yes. nearby. And you like hybridized so them and made I a new name. I did, okay. yeah, yeah. And so, but Melford Hall, which is in Long Melford, is very much Hagen Hall in the book. So okay. other than, I mean, you can walk, you can find the same businesses, although I changed their names. Um, and that's a lot about birds. Now, I have had birders say to me, oh, yeah, you know about birds? And especially British birders, I get a little nervous when they say this because, of course, what do I know about? I know what I've learned about British birds. Right, right. If anyone's going to challenge you on horticulture, you could hold your own. Oh, my gosh. I, all those plant names are correct. Yes, you do um, have a master's in yes, horticulture. Yes, but birds, I have I made sure that the main character who is in her... Uh, for, uh, close to 40, mm-hmm. is the daughter of an ornithologist, not an ornithologist. So herself. she's like got a little bit of a, of a credibility, but she doesn't have to be the, the She's the not the expert. scientist. It's yeah. her, her father who has a really popular television program on BBC Two called uh, Bird in the Hand. <laughs> So. And that's a charming series, too. I've read everything you've written, so I, I'm in love with that. Uh, but we'll talk about your new series uh, before we uh, yes. wrap up, because uh, that, is, that is like the, the, the newest chapter of your life. Before we do that, though, I want to pivot and talk about uh, Marty Wingate. When we first met, I remember very much being at a Garden Writers like cocktail party reception at the Northwest Flower and Garden Show, which is now called the Northwest Flower and Garden Festival. Yes. It was probably in the early 2000s, Mm. maybe even late 90s. And I always thought that the byline I read, Marty Wingate, was a man for some reason, Martin. (laughs) And I heard someone say your name, and I like whipped my head around, looked across the room, and saw you, and somehow decided to go introduce myself or say hello or tell you I loved your writing. Because at the time, you were a, were you a features writer for the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, or where were you writing? I was, um, yes, but freelance. Yeah. I didn't work for the PI. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had uh, got a hold of the features editor at a the perfect moment when he was thinking that they would expand their garden column into a whole page. And uh, so somehow I, I got to write for it. It was great. Wow, wow. And, yeah. that, and at that point in your career, you, um, you 
had a re- received a master's in mm-hmm. horticulture, is yes. urban horticulture, urban horticulture from University of Washington. Yes. And what other kinds of like, what did you decide you wanted to do with that career? Well, um, I when fortunately when I got my master's at UW, uh, I. I was not a young student, <laughs> and so I could kind of decide, and at that time, the urban horticulture uh, department, I, they had another name for it, had, you could emphasize different things, and mm. I chose public education, mm. and so public education could be anything from working uh, for extension mm-hmm. and writing bulletins mm-hmm. to anything I wanted, and Going, so... Working in public horticulture, like at a botanical garden, yes, that sort of thing? Yes, okay. yeah, and so I, I sort of took that and wormed my way in <laughs> the, through the back door uh, by writing neighborhood newspaper columns and... Uh, I think the the first article assignment I got for Horticulture Magazine, I thought, I have made it. This was it. I so know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> it took a long time, it too. It sure did. And actually, you I, I might have known your name from the Arboretum Bulletin because yes. you also wrote for our local Arboretum Quarterly Magazine. Yes. <clears throat> so fast forward, we, we became friends through the... Uh, I shouldn't say fast forward. This is the second phase of this story. We became friends and... Um, kind of saw each other at, at garden events. And I think what really bonded us, along with a lot of our peers, was that we uh, decided to host, uh, be the host committee for the Garden Writers Association meeting in Seattle, a national meeting in 2002. We kind of got bound at the hip at that, and that was yes. pretty crazy. It was. It was insane. 500, 600 people? Uh, at least, come here? It yeah. It was just... And we were hiring buses and putting bus coaches on that we had. Writing itineraries. It was like planning a massive garden tour over five days. With just barely knowing what you're doing. Right, right. (laughs) But um, but But seeing some fabulous gardens around the area. Right. And like me, you know a lot of people and people don't want to say no to you. Mm -hmm. And so we got into some amazing gardens and we we showed our our peers, professional writing peers, that, that Seattle was on the map. Um, but then um, we were all so exhausted, we never wanted to do that again. No. <laughs> um, and then soon after that, the Seattle PI expanded their section to Home and Garden, That's right? That's right, in and, the tab section. Yeah, when was that? Oh, I have no idea. Yeah, I want to say right around that same time, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, so the editor you referred to, John Engstrom, mm-hmm. was the editor. You By then, you had written for him m- numerous years. Yes. And he tapped you to be one of the main features writers. Right, yeah. And there were a number of our good friends who were writing, Marianne Bonetti, mm-hmm. and um, I don't remember who else, but at some point, and John really needed someone to write about interiors and architecture, and I sort of got in on that because that's what I've been doing for another newspaper. So we worked together on... Um, on but that you, publication. And you managed to put something about flowers in every one of those I articles. I did, I did. What was that <laughs> section called, Marty? I can't even remember. Oh, I can't remember either. NW Home and Garden or something like that? Yeah, oh, could have been. Northwest Homes and Garden. It was some yeah. very generic name, but that was a good run for a while. Um, I left Seattle and went off to Southern California, and you continued to write garden books, be a speaker, uh, be, lead tours that became a huge part yes, of your garden stories. I love it, and that's sort of how you like fed your habit for all things Anglophile, right? It it is. It's true. Yeah, it was just uh, we had a tour almost every year, starting in two thousand two, hmm. um, to some part, and we focused on an area because I, I am against spending one night 
in a hotel and moving and spending one night in a hotel. That's you know how to do this right. Yeah. What's your rule? Three nights. Three nights is great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, what kind of places were you leading? And these were garden lovers tours. Yes, they were. Now they were not, um, we didn't, no one had to take a test Mm. and we didn't go to four gardens a day and nobody lectured. So it's the kind of garden tour where people who loved to garden enjoyed it and people who liked to see gardens enjoyed it. Uh, so we and we would throw in a little historical thing now and then, and uh, we did the Cotswolds. We would often include Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Chelsea's really fun. Yeah, you've uh, been to Chelsea Flower Show how many times? Uh, a few, oh, five or six times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wow. Hampton Court occasionally if we're going in July. Um, we've done Cornwall once or twice. Parts of Cornwall. Uh, we've done Scotland a couple of times. Oh, love Scotland. And uh, we did the North. I love this York you know, across that into the Lake District. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so. you did, did you do Ireland? Yeah, we've done Ireland, yes. 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 And how about France? I know that was at one point we on your did. list. We did. We did it. We took a small group to France, and wow. that was really interesting. One of the things I loved was seeing a, a garden uh, at the right at the seaside, practically, in Normandy, that was designed by Edwin Lutyens and Gertrude Jekyll. Oh, my goodness. And they are icons of British gardens, of course, from the earliest 20th century. And it was fascinating to see... What, what Gertrude Jekyll never saw it, but she chose the plants for it. How their vision changed because of the climate. Wow. It's more Mediterranean then. A little bit, yeah. But, pe- but the same colors, you know, she still used the same colors. But people don't necessarily know about that garden. That was kind of no, a... No, but you can still uh, visit it. Bois du Motier. I'm sorry, I'm terrible with French. That's okay. That's okay. I'm sure that I'm sure that we can... If people are really interested, they'll yes. reach out and yes. I'll, I'll connect you. So all the while you're... Uh, from the out, outside looking in, you have this amazing garden writing career and speaking career, and you've done num- a number of books in landscape design and um, sort of different themes relating yes. to design. Plant selection. And um, and then had the whole newspaper career. And, and then I think you experienced much of what I experienced is that things started to change in the... Re- profession of being a garden writer and and I would pin that to around the crash in 2008 definitely okay so what happened for you well the PI ceased yeah. to be a print publication uh, it's a it was a Hearst paper and they went online only and news focus only so there are no features I think there is still a Seattle a SeattlePI.com I think there I is think. yeah uh, so but I mean can I just say that in my life we were a new two newspaper yeah, town yeah. Seattle in my lifetime, I always said, if any one of them is going down, it's going to be the independently family-owned Seattle Times yeah. because Hearst is... Right. They wouldn't give up. They're like, you know, yeah. blue chip, right? I know. I know. It's but amazing. the opposite happened. It was happened. a shock. Yeah. And, uh, and so that changed... At about the same time, I will say, I, you know, I owe this all. I believe I owe this all to a good friend of mine whom I always meet for tea or coffee at um, Third Place Books mm-hmm. uh, north of Seattle. Our fabulous of independent, independent books. Yeah. And um, they have a good series of author appearances there. And I would always look at the posters, who was going to come. And my friend started saying, you know, you should write a garden murder mystery. And I said, I don't write fiction. I couldn't do that. I read about that. (laughs) Every once in a while, she would bring it up again. And so the day I came in, and this is a very popular series, so I am not dissing this series at all. I saw a poster for the author of the scrapbooking mystery series coming to town. I thought, okay, fine. If there can be a scrapbooking mystery series, there can be a garden series. And I I cannot tell you how, from that point, I got to um, the garden plot, 
but it just, I started it. We have a dear, dear friend who is a fantastic developmental editor and read my first draft and gave me some great advice. We spent one dinner with another friend um, talking about character development mm-hmm. and story arcs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so by the time I had that book finished and I was working on book two and then book three, I found an, an agent who pitched the book found a publishing house and it just went on from there. Mm-hmm. So what year what year did the the garden plot come out? 2014. So okay. it's only been 5 years. Wow. Marty. I started writing in 2011, I think. Okay. I have a couple observations as a person who's lived her life vicariously through your successes. <laughs> uh that's a lot of books to crank out in 5 years, two uh, average of 2 a year. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, the other thing is that you have a, such a disciplined practice as a writer, and I am I'm in awe of it. <laughs> so give everyone a little snapshot of kind of what your what your ritual is. How do you do this? Well, I my, uh, a normal day is I would I write in the morning, and then occasionally in the afternoon I can edit. I can't do a lot of new stuff in the afternoon. Like how many hours will you write in the morning? Well, I will be sitting there for probably four hours, but that doesn't mean I'm writing the whole time. Right, do you allow yourself to check email while you're writing? I, I, some days, yes, some days. Because I do, I, I do that for just a little mental break, and I know it's kind of and a bad habit. And then it drags you off. Yeah. I, I will do that in the morning at home, but then I write in the library or our local third place books coffee area where the noise is neutral. It has nothing to do with me. I don't have to get up and put laundry in. I don't have to feed the cats. I don't have to do anything. Your husband leaves you alone. That's yeah. right. That's right. And so um, I will try not to. Okay. Um, but I am online a lot researching, checking things, you know, where what does the Royal Horticultural Society say this zone, the plant, you know, grows in what zones? So basically you're not one of those people who just like, vomits out a first draft and then you go back and fix all that stuff later. No, but there are many, many writers who will write for it. They, they call it, you know, they just put it out there and then they go, I cannot do that. Okay. I am the kind of writer that I'll write uh, you know, a thousand words, two thousand words, but then before I can go any further, I have to go back and look at that because I don't know where I'm going unless I look and see where I've been and correct what I know is wrong. That That's right. You said that you are always kind of Pulling um, that's right an update through mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the the narrative of the book yeah. and that and the nice thing is then occasionally I'm going back not more than occasionally I'll I'll get to a point where I'll look back and then start rereading through and I'll think oh look I said that there and now I can use it here interesting so like your I, your subconscious yes, is doing the writing for you I sometimes think so, yeah. and then um, this ritual uh, is uh, just giving you structure for hitting that two-book-a-year deadline as well. Yeah, it really helps. I don't know how I was able to... I still can't figure this out. I was able... My brain was able to translate an 800-word newspaper article into an 80,000-word book. (laughs) But I know where I am. I look at the little, you know, word count on the bottom of my word page, and I think, okay, now we should be doing this. Right. And (laughs) probably the 80,000-word book is a little more lucrative than the 800-word garden As a matter of fact, it is. Yes. (laughs) The other ritual you have is that you always work in uh, with a group of fellow writers in like a workshopping setting. And I've always admired that, too. Uh, uh, Writers groups are amazing. And in fact, my first editor, when he said... This was such a polished manuscript. He just couldn't believe it. Not that he didn't have a lot of edits to tell me, but um, 
I said, well, I'm in a writer's group. He said, it's like having four more editors at the table with you. You keep them. Wow. So Wow. And you've been with this group since 2011 as well, right? Yes, eight years. And you actually, you said you started writing in 2011. The very, one of the very first things you did was participate in this conference, right? I, I, was, I, I had a clear vision, and that was really amazing, too, the switch. With, I, signed up, I joined the Pacific Northwest Writers Associations to, jo- to sign up for their conference. There are conferences all over the country. People can do this. Because if I signed up for the conference, I was able to sign up for two agent pitches. Because I knew, you know, we, you don't necessarily need an agent for garden writing. We, we've learned that. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it yeah, isn't. Yeah, it's such a small community. We yes, kind of we have relationships with the editors. That's right. right. But in fiction, I knew no one. Mm-hmm. And I knew nothing. And I, except I knew that there were a lot of publishers would, that would not look at unagented mm-hmm. scripts. Mm-hmm. So, so um, now you have this uh, reputation for writing British-based mysteries. Do you ever run against, up against people who, who question how you, as an American author, have any right to tell a story in the UK? Or, like, how do you... How do you I mean, I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, but. yeah. I don't... Um, we have a... The two of us have a very good friend, a British friend, yes. uh, Victoria. And I have had... Victoria has read a couple of uh, uh, printed manuscripts I had. And she... I remember she... In, in the Garden Club, the one of the first books, because I try to put in the correct British terms as far as possible. And she did correct something. She said, oh, we wouldn't call it a fence, we call it a railing. Mm. So I remember that. And so I try to be very careful about that. Then I run up against the um, U.S. copy editors who say, you can't use that word, nobody will understand what it is. If I use a British term that is not familiar in this country, I make sure that it is defined by the way I use it. Okay. I'm very careful about it. Yeah. In fact, you could probably start a great dictionary of British vernacular. Uh, yeah. Because you've told me a couple of them, like boot instead of trunk of the yes, car, right? Yes, yeah. Um, I think it's charming. And I think it makes it much more authentic. And even and also, you're an American um, writer, and your first protagonist is an American. Yes. So, you know, that's legit, right? And that was, that was easy to... It's easier to do in the Potting Shed Mysteries. And in fact, in the... Um, there's a current one I'm writing now. Uh, one of my, uh, a woman in my writers group said, had reminded me that people need to know that Prue is an American, even though she's been living in England now for three or four years. It's good to know. So I try to throw in a few little Texas Tex- <laughs> phrases, Texas every once references. In a while. Yeah, I'm waiting for this to be picked up as a as a um, I don't know PBS murder mystery series because I uh, I would love it. <laughs> I'm sure you've already cast your your, your oh, characters. It, 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 that's such a fun discussion. <laughs> Who would play Christopher? Who would play Prue? <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, my gosh. Well, you'll have to, listeners, you're going to have to read um, Marty's books to hear, to kind of get on the inside of what we're talking about. But the Potting Shed Mysteries and Birds of a Feather are digital only books. Yes, they are. And audio. And audio. Okay. Yeah. And so they're available on, you know, all, all independent or what recognizable ever? digital platforms. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And there's, there's obviously Amazon and Barnes and Noble and we like yes. to send people to Powell's books, but and, there's also... And there, uh, independent bookstores now have uh, work with a company that does audiobooks, and I think it's called Libro.fm or okay. something like that. And then there's so. also like an indie book platform for downloading digital books, yes. too, like on your Kindle or yes, something. Yes, yeah. Or your, your smart pad, whatever it is. Um, okay, so we've 
we've talked for years about this dilemma, like, okay, you're a famous author. How do you do a book signing yeah. with a digital book? Exactly. Um, I want to know what you do, and then I want to talk about how that's changing for you uh, yeah. as we kind of wrap things up. Well, uh, there are... People have tried over the years various ways to get an ebook autographed, and in <laughs> fact, Alibi did pair with some company at one point that we were supposed to do. So it, it didn't work. Um, that imprint, Alibi, is owned is, by Random House. That's right. right. Okay. And so, uh, when I am live someplace, I can't. For in, for instance, I go to mystery fan conventions, and so they have a program, and there's my name and my picture under the authors appearing at this convention. So I can sign that, but I can't sign a book. Right, right. Um, but you do all kinds of fun events with um, these other other mystery writers, mm, and you yeah. create experiences for people, and they yes. get to know about you and your books. Yes, right? definitely. Okay. Yeah. And so, do you have a calendar of those events on your website? They are all on my website. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. MartyWinget.com, yeah. and we will also um, share links. Uh, to, yes, uh, to that uh, that site as well as maybe some book covers and pictures of you and all your social places. Um, so something really exciting happened last year, and that is uh, your third series. Can you tell us yeah. this news? I it, it's great news. Um, I worked with my agent, and she's she's my third agent, but it's not my fault. Um, <laughs> I would like to premise that. There's a backstory there. <laughs> That's right. She's a, a fabulous. And um, she suggested that if I had an idea for a third series, that might be a good time to shop it around to other publishers who would be print publishers mm -hmm. as well as ebooks. And so I did, and we worked out this idea that I had thought about and um, proposed it and got a great deal with Berkeley Prime Crime, which is one of the best murder. Um, Prince around <laughs> genre, yeah. Uh, uh, I'm looking. I'm yeah. holding the advanced copy. The and bodies in the library. Okay, this is so great. And the series is called a first edition library mystery. Yes. So, how did you even come up with this idea, Marty? And tell us a little bit about it. <laughs> well, the it's it's fun to read the famous authors and the not so famous authors from the 1920s and 30s and on the golden age of mystery that's what they're called and the women authors especially yes. everyone knows Agatha Christie Dorothy L. Sayers there are several more that are Marjorie really, Allingham Marjorie yeah. Allingham uh, Niall Marsh who was new uh, from New Zealand but wrote books set in England um and uh Several others. Yes. Uh, so what the premise of this is, it takes place in, surprise, England. Um, <laughs> Darn it, you have to go back. I know. In, the, in Bath. And Bath is one of the most fabulous cities. It's just wonderful. Bath is very steeped in Jane Austen, even though she didn't care for the city very much. But um, everybody who knows anything about Jane Austen will want to go to Bath. So, And by I, the way, Prue hadn't done anything in Bath yet, no, right? No, she had So you not. had to get there. I had Bath uh, all set up for Haley Burke, the Okay. new um, main character. And so I decided that this first edition library, uh, first editions of the Golden Age of Mystery authors would be in Bath. It was the collection of Lady Fowling, a woman who died when she was 94 just a few years ago, uh, and had collected these books. And so this is Haley Burke is the new curator. She's never read a detective story in her life, so she's kind of winging it, but she loves the job because it has... She's a single mom and, you know, takes care of her mother and her but finances she, are strained. But she's in charge of this, uh, like, world-class collection of first editions. Yes. That mean, does that mean that they've all been uh, signed by the authors and well, all of that? Well, there are, as she explains to um, 
Sergeant Hopgood <laughs> at the scene of the murder. That, <laughs> We're jumping ahead. I know that, that there are the, the most rare books are um, secure in, in the bank. Okay. But as far as rare books go, you know, it just depends. The market fluctuates. Uh, at the library at Middlebank, the house uh, where the library exists, it is other first editions, perhaps a, a second printing. They could be a foreign edition. They could be a... So it's a mix of okay. things. But many of them are signed to Lady Fowling herself from uh, those authors who were still alive in the 50s. And so that's the premise. And so the book, the bodies in the library, the book one, is of course a nod to Agatha Christie, the body in the library. That was her book. And um, I love it. So I figured each book will have a thread of one of these famous authors. So the, the book I'm writing now has a Dorothy L. Sayers slant to it. Yes. In fact, we talked about that, yeah. and, and I, I feel like I maybe gave you one insight that might end up in that book. Yes. Oh, you know, because I'm never going to write a mystery in my life, <laughs> but I'm going to live vicariously through you, as I said. So, The Bodies in the Library, uh, a first edition library mystery, is coming. It, it, you, you, get, you share with me an advanced copy, which yes. is like a reader's copy, but yeah. when will it be hardback and available to the public? October 8th. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That is so exciting, Marty. Yay. Congratulations. You're already working on the second one. You have a contract to do a third one. Yes. And then who knows after that, uh, they'll keep going. Because the yeah. thing with the types of mysteries you write, it seems to me, and others too, but once you find an author you love, mm. you can't wait for their next book. Yeah. So uh, just find this category that you're in, just because I had never learned it since I heard it from you. Yeah. Well, they're they're traditional mysteries. Okay. They're the Miss Marple kind of mystery. Okay. That that's generally uh, they're, what they're referred to. In the last ten or fifteen years, there have been all these little breakoffs and cozy mysteries. Nowadays, what used to be called co- this used to be called a cozy mystery, but nowadays cozy mysteries are a little bit more. Um, uh, light and and like full novelty, of, full of puns. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. So you're not necessarily you you use traditional mystery. I, I think it's a better description of that okay. Genre. Oh, good, good. I learned something new. Well, I will be thinking about you when I'm at Chelsea. In fact, I'll see you when I'm in England because yes. you're going to be there too. Yes, <laughs> we're going to meet in a pub and have a Pim's cup. Yay! <laughs> I love it. Um, I've learned so much about uh, England and about uh, just changing your career and deciding to do what you love wow. and you know making we both a life, know about that <laughs> yeah making a life for yourself that is um just rich and rewarding and fulfilling and um it obviously you didn't have any guarantee when mm-hmm. you when you lost that column at the pi you were scrambling to write kind of as i like to say garden variety garden stories right yes, and at right. some point yeah. it's not even that fulfilling when you're writing the same kind of theme year, year after year and bless your friend who said Marty you got to write a garden murder mystery <laughs> I love it I, I'm so excited to know that I can come to the book signing and get a signed copy from you Yay. in October and um, the, all your books are fabulous but I do think there is something really kind of in, I don't know just visceral about holding a book so yes it's great I'm very excited oh you. I'm thrilled for you um, anything else that you want to share before we wrap up well, Next time I have you on, I'm going to make you do a reading. I will do a reading for you. I, I have some advice for you. Be sure, take a picture for me 
of at least one of the Auricula theaters okay. in the Grand Marquis. Yes. Because I love Auricula. I love Auricula's in May. That's when they're in bloom. Yes, and that is a really British thing, isn't yeah, it? definitely. And Auricula's are primroses, but yes. not the big, fat, Fred Meyer, no, no. Home Depot primroses. These are tough plants, and they grow well in little clay pots, and they have, their leaves are almost kind of uh, succulent-like. Yes, know? they are. Yeah. yeah, and they're just... They're, that's a Victorian uh, it is. effect, yes. isn't it? yeah. Okay, yeah. I will do that for you, Marty, and I will see you in... Um, somewhere in England, see in, you London. in London. Yeah. Um, you've already told me where we're going, and that you and Leighton are going to pick me up, which yes. is great because I could get lost very easily. But I'm going to be with a pro. Good. And I hope that for those of you who are listening, that if you are looking for something to listen to besides the Slow Flowers podcast, <laughs> get in one of Marty's audiobooks, or if you're traveling, load them all onto your uh, your reader and. Um, hold and pre-order the bodies in the library there you are for uh october because it's probably already available. oh it's up yeah you can order it anywhere you can order it at your local independent bookstore if you'd like awesome or ask your library yes your librarian oh, to definitely get it. Yeah. yeah thank you so much i'm so glad that we could do this i've been wanting to do it for a long time <laughs> thank you deborah Marty agrees that her horticulture background is an essential part of her narratives. I love writing about gardens and about plants. I always have correct gardening information. Other than that, I can make up everything else, she says. I hope you explore her many titles and become as hooked on Marty's storytelling as I am. And now a huge surprise. I have one copy an advanced reader copy of Marty's brand new book. It won't be out until October. And as soon as I finish reading it, The Bodies in the Library, I'll share this book with one lucky listener in a random drawing. To enter, post your best idea for a garden or floral murder mystery in our comments section at deborahprinzing.com by May 31st. We'll draw a winner on June 1st and announce his or her name on June 5th. And by the way, the winner of this month's earlier giveaway of Teresa Sabankaya's The Posy Book is Heather Coughlin of Pure Bloom Flowers in Long Grove, Illinois. Congratulations, Heather. I'm shining our next sponsor spotlight on the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, a farmer-owned cooperative committed to providing the very best the Pacific Northwest has to offer in cut flowers, foliages, and plants. The Growers Market's mission is to foster a vibrant marketplace that sustains local flower farms and provides top quality products and services to the local floral industry. Visit them at seattlewholesalegrowersmarket.com. And now let's turn our attention to the state of Maine and our 50 states of slow flowers guest, Rain Grace Hoke of Flora's Muse, a floral design studio. Rain writes this on her website. I'm enamored with the beauty of nature and I love the thrilling mix of magic and science. The graceful weight of a tulip in the hand and then the intoxicating aroma of mimosa brings pure joy and a bit of awe. It's these nuances of the natural world which fascinate me and soaking in these experiences is for me a point of divine expression and, and inspiration. I'm so grateful my floral path has allowed so many opportunities to explore other artistic curiosities beyond flowers, she writes. In the 1990s, I interned at the Textile Conservation Lab at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Additionally, I'm an ambassador and graduate of the Beyond Startup and New Ventures Business Program. 
Via this inspiring organization, I advocate for small woman-owned businesses on the state and federal level. But I've also tapped into weaving, perfumery, fashion design, and even metal smithing. And currently, I'm the Maine-based Slow Flowers member offering Slow Flowers-inspired workshops in Maine. Be sure to see a few photos of this Maine-based Slow Flowers voice, Rain Grace Hoke, as well as finding links to the upcoming Slow Flowers Maine workshop in today's show notes at deborahprincing.com. Well, today I am thrilled to be talking about the state of Maine as part of our 50 States of Slow Flowers series. And our guest today is Rain Grace Hoke of Flores Muse, based in Maine. Hi, Rain. Hey, Deborah. Delighted to be speaking with you. Yeah, thanks so much for jumping on the line with me. We've got lots to talk about. Um, I think I want to start by thanking you for supporting the Slow Flowers Summit. When we announced the summit details and put up registration, uh, I don't know, back in maybe December or something, you were the very first person to register. So you have a special um, spot in my heart. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, a special spot for me too, because without Slow Flowers, I could not be doing what I love to do. So thank you. Oh, great. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you in um, first the 1st of July in uh, Twin Cities. But you're in Maine and you have had a big year as a collaborator with me and Slow Flowers. And I just want to tease everybody about our best news. Uh, Rain was our is our featured designer for American Flowers Week, partnering with Johnny's Seeds for a an incredible botanical couture look and we're going to unveil it uh june 1st in florist review magazine so uh just in a couple weeks time but uh can you talk a little bit can you talk a little bit about how that experience was for you as a designer who really cares about sourcing locally um it was a dream come true in many ways if there weren't pictures taken of it i just would have assumed it was this amazing dream of a lifetime um it was it, it was everything and then some I could have ever hoped for to have that amazing palette from Johnny C's to be working with. I mean, right from the field to see it was just, that was just inspiration on its mm. own working with the Johnny's family at Hillary, everyone, Kristen, they were so wonderful. Our model, Mary, she was such a trooper. She had her farm boots on and she's trudging through the fields as we're creating and it was it was just perfect, absolutely perfect. Well, I'm so glad you said yes when I asked you, and and this is 100 percent you know voluntary because nobody's getting rich off of this. In fact, you donated a lot of time, and <laughs> and talents, and you well um, worth it. Yeah. So so the photos will be be the big reveal. But uh, talk a little bit about like we did. You guys did this like right at the end of the harvest season. It was almost first frost, right? It was almost first frost. I, I call that like the fifth season here in Maine. It's mm-hmm. not quite summer, not quite fall, but a little bit, a little bit of both. And the bounty at that time of the year, everything is just like full force, and it's just so beautiful. And like I said, the just the inspiration from the fields, and you can see the love and dedication from everyone at Johnny's. They love what they do. They do too, which just you know. You just feed off of each other when you love what you do and it's things that do that support a positive impact on the planet. How can you not go wrong? 
Well, and I, I agree. And I think that there's, you had a unique situation because a lot of these teams of farmers and florists um, come together at, uh, you know, with buckets of flowers and you had fields of flowers. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, in some ways you had to like dial it back so you didn't go crazy, like with a beautifully restrained palette. And what, what you did, I, I know some of it took was pre-planned, but some of it you had to be in the moment making decisions about which flowers to include in this beautiful um, bodice of this gown. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's sort of, well, I think that's part of being a floral designer and um, collaborating with people that you are open to interpretation. Um, also, one of the hardest things about being a florist is like when to say no, when to step back, mm-hmm. when to put your own editorial parts in it. Um, so that's just something you learn over time, but it was very easy to get overwhelmed by everything going on. But I had an idea when I started, um, I love crazy quilts. I love fabric mm-hmm. and I just, that's just sort of where I took the idea from. And then it just, it sort of like creates itself in many ways, just like being a floral designer in a vase, um, doing wearable couture looks the flowers sort of talk to you and mm. lend themselves, how they bend, how they they might help you cover up this mechanic because I still like my pieces to be functional. I had to have my model be able to get in the dress and zip it back on up and have it look real. Mm. Yeah, and you're alluding a little bit to the mechanics. Basically, um, there's many ways people can construct these wearable fashions for American Flowers Week. There's all sorts of hidden mechanics from... Mesh to, <laughs> mesh to chicken wire to, to, to textiles. You actually used uh, as a base a, um, a re- reclaimed bridal gown. And is that correct? Yep. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yep. So um, you, had I know a, from, you had a lot of structure then. I knew I needed structure for what I wanted to create because um, I've done fashion design in the past. And I know you can't just like glue flowers on fabric and it's going to hold its shape. Mm-hmm. You need to have an idea of construction of, um, of, of clothing. So it, it mimics clothing. So it looks like it's real. So it doesn't look like it's just flowers glued on, mm-hmm. on something. So that's sort of part of the mystery and the trick. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. And I think maybe when we start working on 2020 American Flowers Week, I'm going to have you get on a conference call with the designers to just talk about some of those issues because, uh, yeah, flowers don't behave like fabric. You have to kind of... No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> you have to kind of trick them into doing what you want. So anyway, it's it's or stunning. they trick you. They <laughs> tell you where to put <laughs> uh, Well, so. talk a little bit about your path. How did you fall into flowers? I know you have a very eclectic background um, as, a, as eclectic. a Mainite. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I think it goes back to both sides of my family. They're, they're farming families. I was the first generation that wasn't brought up 100% on a farm. Mm. So I was always, as a child, going, going to my... Um, uncle's farms, my great aunt's farms, my grandfather's farms. So I was always out in nature. So I always had that deep love for it. And my mom let me know maybe about 10 years ago, my first word was flowy. <laughs> so it seems that maybe it's just in my blood. I love it. And I love, and I love to create. I sort of feel like what I do with flowers, especially doing the editorial pieces or the wearable art, I feel like I'm back in Girl Scouts or Brownies when you're doing arts and crafts and you're playing with acorn caps or, <laughs> or, or who knows what. And now here I am, you know, 
doing it for a living and I just feel so blessed and I love it. Love it. So you're a Maine native, right? No, I'm not a Maine native. I moved to Maine in 99. Um, We would come up here as kids, my family, we would vacation. And at one point my parents were living here for about six months when they were, my mom was pregnant with me. So I like to say I just dated in Maine. I might not have been born here. Um, but you came back as an adult. I came back as an, as an adult, and I wish I had moved up sooner, but I'll never. I love my time in Boston. I love my time in Pennsylvania, New York, Vermont, um, California, but Maine is where my heart is. Well, it is is so evident in your work and your collaborations. Both You've worked uh, on flower farms. You've worked in retail floristry. Now you're... Uh, independent as a sort of solopreneur, right? Yeah. I guess you say a studio florist is the yeah. new term for it. <laughs> yes, that's a good one. Uh, tell yeah. me tell me about what's happening in Maine in terms of like your, I would say, you didn't you work on a flower farm for like over the last 10 years, you've been in, engaged actively in local flowers, right? Yes. Yes. I worked at um, Snell Family Farm for 13 years. It's flowers and produce and apples and we have a bakery there now, and so it was, you know, one on one seeing mm. the you know the flowers being you know sown, the seeds in the in the, our little, little baby greenhouse we call it, and having them upgraded to the next pot, and then when it went out in the field, and so really really knowing how much work it takes to get from mm-hmm. to get that beautiful perfect you know tulip um, peony tulip, it mm-hmm. takes a bit of work. Mm-hmm. So and, and- it's a lot of respect. Yes, and might I say, I sorry to cut you off. Might I say you have okay. a con- concentrated, condensed growing season in Maine, right? That makes it even harder. Oh yeah, it's 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 so bountiful when it hits, it hits. But like this year, the spring is still lingering. We had snow this morning, so <gasps> yesterday I was out foraging for things because I have a client on um, I'm doing a big uh, installation for this weekend. So, I mean, you you are really become good friends with the weather up here and learn <laughs> to roll with it and and not fight it. So, But when it does explode here in Maine, the growing season, it is amazing. Um, and until we get that killing frost, sometimes depending on hoop houses and stuff, we can source locally well past Thanksgiving. Wow. Wow. Um, how interesting. Well, you're, you're really um, acting as an ambassador for Slow Flowers in many of the projects <laughs> you've done. And I'm so grateful for that. I, we need a rain grace hoke in every state and we're going to get there. Uh, <laughs> um, but, Thank but, you, Deborah. Yeah, but you, um, Florist Muse is partnering with, uh, is it uh, with Laura at West Wind Florals? Is that right? Yeah. To put yes. an event I together? My, yeah, I call her my flower sister from another mister. Um, we complement each other very well. Um, we both have the slow flower um, core in our hearts. We met at the Whidbey Island uh, for a workshop. And I mean, who would have thought two years ago we were sitting across the goodbye dinner to get together, you know, forming our friendship. And then she ended up moving here to Maine and we continued what we talked about at Whidbey two years ago. And wow. now we're doing slow flower meetups um, and we're having one on June 3rd and 4th. And it's a Today, extravaganza of everything Maine. All our flowers come from Maine. Our teachers come from Maine. Our person is doing silk ribbon dyeing. She's a natural dyer. She's right here in Maine using local um, plants to create the dyes. It's being catered by all the local restaurants here in Biddeford, Maine. We're working with the 
Pepperell Mill and the main repertory theater right here in Biddeford in Maine to really make this a main inclusive workshop wow. um, and show what we have going on here. We wow. might have a slow, might have a really limited uh, window, but we can really work it. <laughs> wow. So it's, give me the dates again, June 3rd and 4th? Correct. Yeah, okay. June 3rd and 4th. Yeah. Okay. And um, we'll make sure we share information about how people can uh, see the kind of the program and sign up and it's not too late. Yeah. You're still accepting registrations. Nope. We're still accepting registration and my website has a link to it. Uh, under events and workshops. Okay, so great. Great. Well, we'll make sure to share Floris Muse uh, uh, website and also, um, well, you know what? You were part of an article that uh, you and Laura, for your last sort of yeah. collaborative thing, you were part of an article in Floris yeah. Review. So I'll share a link to that yeah. so people can kind of see the kind of uh, what we have going on well, up I was here. Gonna, I was going to say ambitious installations that the two of you think up, and um, it's oh. it's really exciting to see. We're ecstatic with our location. It's we set for a more urban setting this time. We mm -hmm. you know did a farm the last time, but we're with the rebirth of the mills here in Biddeford. I mean, the urbanness sounds so strange. The urbanness is gorgeous. All mm -hmm. the brick and they're all the exposed wood and. At the Repertory Theater, it is just gorgeous, and we are just dying to create beauty in that mm. space. And is Biddeford, uh, is sort of outside of Portland, Maine, correct? Yes, it's about maybe half an hour south of Portland. Okay. Um, I guess we're also starting to get to known as like the Brooklyn mm. of Portland. <laughs> um, but it's a great um, community. It's a huge incubator for new businesses because the mills here in Biddeford are being repurposed. Mm. Um, oh, and so once they that were, were vacant. They, were they textile mills? They were, or? They were textile mills. Okay. Um, I believe they closed down maybe 10, 15 years mm. ago. And wow. they have been a huge, you know, like my, my co-working space is in one of the mills. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's so many different little individual businesses that would not have that wouldn't be able to do it yeah. have a brick and mortar if they didn't have this type of support. So oh. I'm delighted to be part of the community in Biddeford. I'm delighted to bring some flowers to Biddeford. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Because we'll be working with all the local flower farms and and we'll be out foraging here in Biddeford too. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Let's get the information out for everybody um, so that, you know, there's still a couple weeks to sign up. And um, yeah. I really want, oh my gosh, what a fun way to experience a beautiful region at a time of the year where, you know, oh, just it's so gorgeous. just everything's waking up. So thank yeah. you. Hey, Rain, thanks for sharing uh -huh. a little bit of Maine with us. And, um, we, oh, thank you, Deborah. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in a, about six weeks time. So, um, I know it's going to be wonderful. And, uh, and thank you for giving a shout out to Maine. It's a very special place. It's, it's, it's not just the beauty of the place. It's the beauty of the people. Cause mm. You, you choose to live here, so mm -hmm. that takes something special. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love that. Okay, thank you so much. And we'll share uh, some photos that Rain will sh uh, send to me uh, about what some of their past projects and a little bit about Flora's Muse and links to all her social places. So thanks for helping us focus on Maine today. Thank you, Deborah. Take care. I'm so 
grateful to you for joining me today and for spending your time listening to the Slow Flowers podcast. Thank you to our entire community of flower farmers and floral designers who together define the Slow Flowers movement. Earlier this month, our core member benefit, the Slow Flowers online directory, turned five years old. This is a major milestone, and I can't tell you how excited I am to see our cause gain more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of the American cut flower marketplace. As I often say, and as you heard in my conversation with Rain, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. I value your support and invite you to show your thanks with a donation to support my ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at deborahprincing.com. Our final sponsor thanks this week goes to Northwest Green Panels. Based in Madras, Oregon, Northwest Green Panels designs and constructs a wide array of wood-framed greenhouses, offering versatility, style, and durability. Their greenhouses are 100% Oregon-made, using twin-wall polycarbonate manufactured in Wisconsin, making Northwest Green Panel structures a great value for your backyard. The 8x8-foot modern slant greenhouse has become the essential hub of my cutting garden. Check out photos of my greenhouse in today's show notes or visit Northwest Green Panels at nwgreenpanels.com to see more. I'm so excited about the upcoming Slow Flowers Summit, and I hope you can join me and our vibrant and engaging lineup of presenters on July 1st and 2nd in St. Paul, Minnesota. One of the top reasons our attendees love the Slow Flowers Summit is the opportunity to mix and mingle with other kindred spirits. So we want to make it easy for you to experience the summit and bring along your BFF, your partner, colleague, or team member with our plus one ticket promotion. Please grab your tickets before we sell out. We've extended our special plus one ticket promotion through the end of the month, May 31st. So take advantage of this generous offer, which is when you register for Slow Flowers, you can add a guest for $275. This applies to anyone who has already registered as well as new ticket buyers. You can find the plus one promo option by following the register link at slowflowerssummit.com. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 467,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging on to iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at soundbodymovement.com.